Our Father, we thank you that in you there is only yea and nay, that there is no wavering, there is no compromise, there is only <coughs> truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And we're so grateful, Lord, that we can trust in you to bring truth to our hearts and minds here today. Father, we not only want to learn intellectually, but we want to learn in our spirits to walk in obedience, to love you as you have challenged us to do so, and to love our neighbor as ourself, even as Jesus said. And Father, I pray that being like Jesus will be our goal, and that you'll help us when we fail to allow you to pick us up and dust us off and, and to move on. And Father, just protect us from discouragement and uh, from the assault of the evil one. We ask that your spirit will be our teacher and our guide this morning. We ask that throughout this Sunday school and in the service that is transpiring at this hour, that your name will be uplifted. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. If you'll turn in the scripture to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21. I'd like to begin reading with verse 21. Numbers 21, 21. Then Israel sent messengers to Sion, king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn off into the field or vineyard. We will not drink water from the wells. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your border. But Sion would not permit Israel to pass through his border. So Sion gathered all his people and went out against Israel in the wilderness and came to Jehaz and fought against Israel. Then Israel struck him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, as far as the sons of Ammon, for the border of the sons of Ammon was Jazer. And Israel took all these cities, and Israel lived in all the cities of the Amorites, in Heshbon and all her villages. For Heshbon was the city of Sion, king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab and had taken all his land out of his hand as far as the Arnon. Therefore those who use Proverbs say, Come to Heshbon, let it be built. So let the city of Sion be established. For a fire went forth from Heshbon, a flame from the town of Sion. It devoured Ar of Moab and the dominant heights of, Ar of the Arnon. Woe to you, O Moab! You are ruined, O people of Chemosh. He has given his sons as fugitives and his daughters into captivity to an Amorite king, Sion. But we have cast them down. Heshbon is ruined as far as Dibon. Then we have laid waste even to Nophah, which reaches to Medeba. Thus Israel lived in the land of the Amorites. And Moses sent out, sent out to spy Jazer. And they captured its villages and dispossessed the Amorites who were there. Without any understanding of the history of Israel and without any knowledge of the, uh, of the um, topography, the geography of the land, this whole passage is a mystery. But as we look at the land and we see talk about the events which transpire, it really opens up an understanding of how it is that God works in the lives of his people because what he did then, he does now. It is the God of, of Israel who is the God of the church. And, and there really is no difference. We're told in James chapter 1 that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness or shadow of turning. And we understand, therefore, that God is incapable 
of acting capriciously as all of the other gods do throughout history. Even if you read the Quran and you study something about Islam, you discover that Allah is very capricious. And of course, uh, true Buddhism doesn't even believe in gods. Uh, the Hindus have a jillion gods and they're all capricious. And so, no matter how you look at it, the God of Israel, the God of the church, is absolutely unique throughout history and as he functions in our lives today. The Israelites were not allowed to touch the Edomites or the Moabites. God had put those peoples off limits. But the Israelites had permission from God to attack the Amorites and to fight with them. In fact, they were authorized to dispossess them and to, in turn, come into possession of the land that the Amorites had held. Now, what is interesting about this is that the Amorites were a warlike people. They were a people who were accustomed to war. In fact, as we uh, note in, even in this passage, Sion had just completed a successful campaign. And you know how it is uh, if a power, I mean, if a nation has just had a successful war, they're really pumped up. And, and they're ready, and they're prepared militarily for any further uh, warlike activities. And so when Israel comes on the scene, a non-warlike people, <laughs> if Israel was anything, they were non-warlike. And yet, there will be the confrontation between these two nations, and Israel will win. And Israel will win because they functioned in obedience to God. And as we look a little bit at this poem that's here, this song that's between verse 27 and verse 31, we're going to see how what this poem is actually proclaiming is that our God reigns, as we would put it today in chorus. This whole victory that Israel will have is preparatory. It's kind of like the, um, all of these games that are in preparation to the World Cup Championship, you know, in soccer. You have to play all these other games before you come to the real thing. In baseball, I mean, you have to play a million games, it seems like, before you play the final World Series. Maybe they should just have the World Series and forget the rest of it. I don't know. But if you're into baseball, you wouldn't want that to happen, of course. But uh, here, here is Israel. They're in a preparatory campaign here. And they've been promised the promised land. But how are they going to take this land? It's filled with warlike people. Well, God wanted them to know they could win. And so we put them up against a tough people and gave them victory so that they might be prepared in mind and spirit. The Israelites have destroyed Sion and his Amorite army, and they took possession of the land from the Arnon to the Jabbok. Now, if you have your little map that I gave you, yours is white, but uh, when I ran them, there was one orange sheet of paper that came spitting out, and the rest of them all came out white, so I thought I'd keep the orange one. But you'll notice that the Arnon here, which is the main creek, really, that, that pours into some part of the year it pours, into the Dead Sea from the east, from there you go north to the Jabbok. And the, um, the Jabbok is the principal tributary out of the plateau of Gilead uh, into the, the Jordan River. So between the Arnon and the Jabbok, this is the territory they are now coming into possession. And that is the territory which today belongs to the country of Jordan. It does not belong to Israel today. It belongs to the country of Jordan. But it was to be a part of their original heritage. They possessed the territory from the Jordan River over to, you'll notice if you look at your map, there is the word Rabbah. Rabbah over there to the far right. It's the furthest right city east in Ammon. Rabbah was the capital of Ammon, 
Arabah will be a long-standing city that will be influential to the history of Israel. In fact, uh, it's when uh, David's army is over here besieging this city that he's fooling around on this king on his palace rooftop and getting in trouble with Bathsheba. Arabah today is incorporated within the boundaries of the modern city of Ammon, <laughs> Ammon, I should say, in Jordan. And no wonder where Ammon got its name, huh? <laughs> Ammon. You just have to change the last vowel from Ammon, and there you've got it, Ammon, which in Jesus' day was known as, anybody know what it was known in Jesus' day? It wasn't called Rabbah, and it wasn't called Ammon. Philadelphia. <laughs> exactly. You wouldn't have known that, huh? It's called Philadelphia. Yeah, Philadelphia. The city of brotherly love. <laughs> okay. Actually, there were a whole series of cities in that area all the way up to the Sea of Galilee that were known as the Decapolis in Jesus' day. And these were Greek cities, Greek-dominated cities, Greek-culturally-oriented cities. And uh, Jesus did touch upon that region a little bit. Finally, Israel has a territory of its own. It wasn't much. Probably if you were to add up that territory between the Arnon and the Jabbok, between the Jordan River and about halfway between Jazer and Rabbah, what you'd have is about a thousand square miles. Roughly the area of Rhode Island, which is the smallest of our states. But it was theirs. Wasn't much, but it was theirs. It's kind of like us when we go home, we say, well, it may not be much, but it's my home. <laughs> and, and, and that's the way it is for, for Israel. As we read in verse 25, Israel lived in the cities of the Amorites, in Heshbon particularly. That was Sion's capital. Heshbon, as you'll notice there, was about halfway between the Arnon and the Jabbok. And Heshbon was the capital. And often the term will be used in the place of the name of the country or of the people, Heshbon and its, and its cities. And Israel will occupy this area and all of the villages round about. In other words, they will move into this land and they will occupy the cities and the towns and the villages of the Amorites. These people had been wandering for 40 years in the wilderness and this portion of the plateau of Gilead may not exactly be what, what, shall I, what shall I compare it to? <laughs> the Willamette Valley of Oregon, you know? It, it's, it's not what we would call paradise, but it was not the wilderness, and it was theirs. And that made the big difference for them. They had been wandering around carrying only what they could carry on their animals and on their own backs. Now they had a place where at least some of them could park it. <laughs> they could put it someplace. And, and call it home. And this was very, very important for them. It was a wonderful feeling for them to finally be a people with a possession. You see, Israel was never made to be a nomadic people. They were not like the Midianites and, and the Arabs through most of their history who were basically nomads. Israel was not nomadic, even though Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been a, a people without a land and had been nomadic. Israel had learned to be sedentary when they were living in Egypt. And for 400 years they lived there. So suddenly, you know, it was difficult for them to be dispossessed. And so finding southern Gilead as their land was wonderful. Between verses 27 and 30, 
we have the triumphant song sung by the people after their great conquest. The first of these three verses, though, has to be understood in the light of giving credit to the Amorites for what they had done. They had had a victory over the people of Chemosh, i.e., the Moabites. The Moabites served Chemosh. The Amorites had defeated the Moabites and conquered a portion of their land. In fact, that region there, from the Arnon all the way up at least to Mount Nebo, had belonged to the Moabites just before Israel came on the scene. And the Amorites had taken it over. So Sion had expanded his kingdom and defeated the Moabites. And that's what this song is saying. Now, we don't know much about the god Chemosh. What we do know is that he was the tutelary god of the Moabites. He was their guardian. He was the god they, they chiefly worshipped. Almost all of the neighboring peoples of Israel were polytheists. That is, they worshipped many gods. But they usually had a principal deity to whom they accorded their greatest amount of worship and they gave the greatest portion of their treasure. In 1868, archaeologists who were working at the site of Daibon, which if you were to put Daibon on this map, it would be located, you see where Jehaz is, north of the Arnon. If you go towards the Dead Sea a little ways, that's where Daibon was located. And in the ruins of Daibon, the archaeologists uncovered a, a black basalt stele, which is known as the Moabite stone. It's a piece of rock about two feet wide and about four feet tall, a couple inches thick, upon which was inscribed in Moabite inscription information about Chemosh. And it tells us that he was a war god and that he had a consort whose name was Ishtar. Now Ishtar, from which we get the word Easter, by the way, Ishtar was the, was the um, a Babylonian version of what later would be known to the Greeks as Aphrodite and to the Romans as Venus. You have this, this almost direct progression down through time from these fertility deities of the ancient world to the Greco-Roman world into which Christianity was born. So it was nothing new in all of this. You know? Ancient Israel dealt with the same problems that the church dealt with at the time of Christ. And as Paul brought the message to the Mediterranean world, the same kinds of gods, similar types of problems. They still practiced human sacrifice to a certain degree in the days of Jesus, not, not amongst the Hebrews, but in the pagan world, as they had clear back at the time we're talking about here. Chemosh was apparently the Moabite version of the Canaanite fertility god that is often referred to throughout scripture as Baal or Baal. B-A-A-L, which means Lord. That was a fertility god amongst the Canaanites. Chemosh was the Moabite version of that. And in 1 Kings, we're told in one of the passages that he was a detestable god. A detestable god. And in this chapter we're looking at here, the 29th verse, what you are reading here where it says, Woe to you, O Moab! You are ruined, O people of Chemosh! He has given his sons as fugitives and his daughters into captivity to an Amorite king, Sion. In other words, what this passage is saying is Chemosh is a traitorous god who has given his own people into the hands of a foreign power. The he there is Chemosh. He, Chemosh, has given his 
daughters into captivity and his sons as fugitives. So he's a traitorous God. He's a weak God. He's a God who has been overwhelmed by the Amorites. The high point of this whole song comes in verse 30. But we have cast them down. Heshbon is ruined as far as Dibon. We have laid waste even to Nophah, which reaches to Medaba. In other words, that whole region there from Heshbon down to the Arnon was totally vanquished by the Israelites and the Amorites were defeated. Now, you get this sequence here. The Amorites have crushed the Moabites and, and destroyed, well, turned their god into a traitor, and now Yahweh comes along and he is able to defeat the gods of the Amorites who had defeated Chemosh. So you get this whole point here that there's an acceleration here, a crescendo. And what they're saying is, our God reigns. That's what they're saying there in that particular verse. Our God reigns not only, of course, in Heshbon and Dibon and Nophah and, and Medabah, but of course, universally, throughout the universe. Now, Sion had been defeated at Jehaz, and his capital at Heshbon, we're told, was occupied by Israel. But there was a small portion in the northern part of his land that hadn't succumbed yet. Up there where you see the word Jazer. And so what we're told in verse 32 is Moses sent to spy out Jazer, and they captured its villages and dispossessed the Amorites who were there. In other words, what this verse is saying in part is that although Israel had been victorious here, they didn't just blunder on into everything else. Oh, we've won, so whoosh. Moses still spied it out, laid plans under God's direction for victory. So what we discover from this is because Jesus giveth us the victory, as we sing the song, doesn't mean we can just bulldoze life. It means that we need to use wisdom, we need to plan, we need to prepare, we need to pray and get God's direction and to use the facilities that he gives us, the brain he gives us, to, to lay plans that seem right under his divine direction as to how we live our lives and how we deal with the situation before us. And then if, you know, one of our plans isn't exactly right, God will modify that and God will move us if we're open to his direction and not pig-headed about our plan. You know, the Israelites had been pig-headed. God, they'd come up to the land and they said, no, we're not going in after the spies came out. And then God says, fine, then you're wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And then they say, well, maybe we don't want to do that, so let's go in anyway. And they were being pig-headed and they were defeated. But here... Moses said, let's spy out the land, let's see what we're doing, and let's take them. And it just simply goes on and says, and they captured its villages and dispossessed the Amorites who were there. So they completed the conquest. They now had the entire kingdom of Sion from the Arnon to the Jabbok. Verse 33 through 35 of this chapter. Then they turned and went up by the way of Bashan, and Og, the king of Bashan, went out with all his people for battle at Edri. But the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him, for I have given him into your hand, and all his people and his land. And you shall do to him as you did to Sion, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So they killed him and his sons and all his people, until there was no remnant left him, and they possessed his land. Israel crossed the Jabbok. And as they were in the north part of Gilead now, they were no longer in Sion's territory. They were in the, the territory of a kingdom of the Amorites further to the north, ruled by an even greater king by the name of Og. 
He rules Bashan. Now, Bashan, uh, he rules northern Gilead, which is from the Jabbok to the Yarmuk, as you see them there. Jabbok to the Yarmuk. By the way, the Yarmuk is the largest of these tributaries into the whole Jordan system, uh, south of the Sea of Galilee. I mean, it's the largest. Uh, the Jordan itself is larger coming from the north. But all these other rivers that you see down below are much less influential on the total water system. So from the Yarmuk south to the Jabbok belong to Og, and from the Yarmuk north all the way to Mount Hermon belong to Og. From the, nor from the Yarmuk north, that is called the Bashan Plateau. From the Yarmuk south, that is called Northern Gilead. And this is the territory now that they are moving into. Now his capital was at Ashtaroth, which you see there on the upper Yarmuk. And he moved out from his capital, brought his whole army with him to deal with Israel. He, he didn't mess around. His brother is his compatriot, not his brother, but his compatriot of the south has been defeated, so he knows this is a serious game he's playing here. So he moves south with his entire army to meet Israel there at Edri. Moses was now faced with a much more powerful Amorite army than they had defeated in the victory over Sion. There were more warriors, they were more bellicose, they were frightened, of course, and so often you replace fear with bellicosity, right? And, and so he, he is faced with this greater foe, it would seem. But God says to Moses, do not fear him, because you will do to him what you did to Sion. Now, what this teaches us is that what is the point of Scripture? Why do we have this book? We have this book so that we can go forward in faith knowing that God will do for us what he's done for others throughout history. What I have just done for you here, I will do for you again, so don't be afraid. God has delivered his people down through the centuries, so we should not walk in fear. We, we need not be fearful of what might transpire in the days and years ahead. Many are, you know, very negative about what's coming up. You know, as we approach the turn of the century, going into the 21st century, many are saying, you know, we face dark times ahead, economically dark. We face persecution. We face, who knows, the, the, the collapse of our entire American system and culture. Uh, who knows what's happening ahead, but, but we don't have to worry about that. That's in God's hands. Amen. Even if times are tough, that's all right. Times have been tough for most Christians throughout all history. As you keep hearing over and over again, more Christians have died in this 20th century through persecution than in the 19 centuries that preceded that from the time of Christ. So the point of that is not to say, oh no, no, we might get persecuted. No, the point of it is God has delivered his people over and over again throughout history. If we walk in obedience, he will be with us. We have nothing to fear. The result of the victory at, as a result of the victory at Idri, Israel possessed all of Gilead and the Bashan Plateau. So now they, they add the northern part of Gilead, they add the Bashan Plateau, which goes clear off the top of your little map there, all the way up to, to the southern slopes of Mount Hermon, which is the highest mountain in that whole area, at nearly 10,000 feet uh, in elevation. With what you do now, if you add up all this territory from the Arnon all the way up to um, this Mount Hermon, that's about 125 linear miles, and then it's about 25 uh, miles in width. It varies a little bit. It, it comes out roughly to about 3,000 square miles. They now have about 3,000 square miles of territory that they can call their own. All of Gilead and all of Bashan. Today, 
As you probably know, in 1967, one of the conquests of Israel was the so-called Golan Heights. Well, the Golan Heights are a significant part of Bashan. And so this is not unique for Israel to possess that area. They did possess it in the past. In fact, they possessed it for hundreds of years. The, the significance of the Bashan Plateau is that it's a good grassland. It's, it's a great place for herding animals. And, and it holds the high ground relative to the Sea of Galilee. And that's one of the reasons why Israel took it in 1967, because the kibbutzim that were around the Sea of Galilee were being shelled by the Syrians sitting up on top of the Golan Heights or up in Bashan Plateau, and they were just lobbing shells down there. And, and so the Israeli, Israelis took that area, as you might expect. And uh, so it's always been an area that's important for the security of Canaan, uh, of Israel, to possess that area. And so now they do. That whole east side of the Jordan, they possess now. And the only territory they don't possess, of course, is the land of the Moabites and the land of the Edomites further to the south. 3,000 square miles is not an excessive amount of territory, however, for 2 million people to live in. Now, the 2 million people are not going to live there. Only a portion of them are going to live there. But it will, in the meantime, serve as a base of operations for the conquest of Canaan. I'd like to turn, if we may, to the third chapter of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is a book where there is a restatement of the law. In fact, that's what the word means, Deuteronomos, the second law, the repeat of the law a second time. But it also recounts many of the events that we've already looked at with uh, certain other ideas and uh, facts thrown in. So let's look at chapter 3, the first 11 verses. Then, this is Moses speaking, of course, to the people in sort of, you know, kind of the around the campfire, let me repeat history to you kind of idea. Then we turned and went up the road to Bashan. And Og, king of Bashan, with all his people, came out to meet us in the battle at Edri. But the Lord said to me, Do not fear him, for I have delivered him and all his people and his land into your hand. And you shall do to him just as you did to Sion, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So the Lord our God delivered Og also, king of Bashan, with all his people into our hands. And we smote them until no survivor was left. Let me just make a statement right here before I read this further, because this has been grossly misinterpreted. During the medieval period of European history, many people in, in Europe viewed Joshua as their archetype for what a medieval knight should be. What they did was they put Joshua on a horse with armor and had him leading Israel off into battle to conquer the pagan lands. And so what the medieval knights felt that they had justification from Scripture to go about and do what they did, which what they really did was to, you know, take territory, kill people for the sake of their own personal glory and personal wealth, but they said it was for the sake of the kingdom of God, you see. They went forth in the power of the Lord to, to, to win victories. And of course, you see this particularly in the Crusades. You know, when Pope Urban stood there at Clermont and, and preached the, the message in 1095 that the crusaders ought to go, uh, that men ought to go on a crusade and capture the Holy Land back from the infidel, I mean, the men just were overwhelmed with this, this, this feeling, yeah, that's, God wills it, and that was what they said, God wills it, God wills it, God wills it, God wills it. And they, they took the cross, you know, and put it on their tunics, and they went forth to war because they were going to be Jacob, uh, Joshua's. They were going to war against the infidel. They were going to murder them in the name of Jesus Christ. 
Well, this is not what this is all about. This is not murdering people in the name of Jesus Christ or in the name of Yahweh. This is cleansing the land of a vile culture that would not change. Because we have read before that God kept Israel in, in um, Egypt long enough for the Amorites to have this opportunity to transform their ways, to believe in the God of the universe. It says, until the, in, the, the iniquity of the Amorite was full, Israel remained in Egypt. So God gave these people an opportunity to repent, and they refused to do so, and therefore now it was time for their destruction. Man, woman, and child, as gross as that may seem, it's like the doctor, the surgeon who goes in there. He doesn't go in there and say, well, there's this cancer here, but these poor cancer cells, I, I shouldn't be too vicious to them, so I'll only take out certain cancer cells. I'll leave the others because they're, they're more gentle or stuff. No, he goes in there, radically removes the whole cancer, and that's what's happening here. God is saying, you must remove this cancer because from generation to generation, this vileness is being transferred. And the only answer is to wipe them out. We might say that is gross and that is crass. It is not. It's the God of the universe. He holds life and death in his hand anyway. And God knows what will be the eternal abode of every man, woman, and child. And whether we get there today or tomorrow or five years from now is pretty irrelevant. If a person is never going to be transformed and God knows and it's going to hell, what difference does it make whether it goes to hell today or ten years from now? Eternity is forever. The time we spend here is nothing in comparison. So we have to view this from God's perspective. They are cleansing the land so that it might be the holy land, as it were, for the occupation of God's people. Verse 4, And we captured all his cities at that time, and there was not a city which we did not take from them. Sixty cities, all the region of Argob, the kingdom of Og in Bashan. All these were cities fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, besides a great many unwalled towns or rural villages. And we utterly destroyed them, as we did the Sion of Heshbon, utterly destroying men, women, and children of every city. But all the animals and spoil of the cities we took as our booty. Thus we took the land... At that time, from the hand of the two kings of the Amorites, which were beyond the Jordan, from the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon, the Sidonians called Hermon Sirion, and the Amorites called it Sinir, all the cities of the tableland, and all Gilead, and all Bashan, as far as Salaka and Edri, cities of the kingdom of Og of Bashan. Notice the little parenthetical statement he makes here. For only Og, king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Raphaim, Behold, his bedstead was an iron bedstead. It is in Rabbah of the sons of Ammon. Its length was nine cubits and its width four cubits by ordinary cubit. Here we discover that 60 towns with walls around them were, were captured by the Israelites as well as numerous other rural villages where the Amorites lived. That they were required of God to wipe out the entire population, to wipe this cancer off the map. And, but they could keep all the goods there, and so they did. And this is the way it's going to be. As Israel moves into Canaan, that is God's orders. They are to receive a turnkey country. They were to walk in and simply take over, move into somebody else's house and, and uh, harvest grapes from somebody else's vineyard and pick figs from somebody else's orchard. And I mean, it was all to be there for them to take because God had prepared it. 
The Amorites had had their opportunity. The Canaanites had had their opportunity. The day had come. It, it reminds me of the day in Genesis chapter 6 where God said, I've had enough. And God said, Noah, build yourself a boat because I'm going to obliterate this entire population. And only eight people were on the boat. And who knows how many millions died in that flood? God alone knows. This is the same concept here. It's just that Israel is the facilitator of it. And you have to believe it was hard for them. It was hard. It may not be hard for a man to kill another warrior, but it's pretty hard to go in and start killing women and children. And you might say, I couldn't do it. Well, God would understand that, but that's what had to be done. We're told that Og was not a normal human being. He was the last of the race of the Rephaim in that region. And we get an idea of how big he was from the description of his bed, which was 13 feet long and 6 feet wide. So he was a relatively big dude. And the second chapter of Deuteronomy will tell us that the Rephaim were tall like the Anakim. They were sort of the remnant in that area of these tall people who had somehow genetically come through Noah, or maybe Satan had simply, you know, do a little bit of gene manipulation here, had, had produced a new race of giants after the flood. And Goliath, of course, would be one later representative of this hundreds of years later. None of them exist, of course, today. This land that they conquered was not technically Canaan. But Gilead and Bashan became a part of the Israelite heritage from this moment on. And we're told in Scripture that, that Israel did not claim it all for the whole of the country, or for the whole of the nation. In fact, what they did was Moses divided the land, and he said, all right, Reuben, the tribe of Reuben, would be given the portion of the land in southern Gilead, and the southern part of, I should say, of Sion's kingdom, up to, from the Arnon up to roughly Heshbon, Mount Nebo, that area. And then that Gad would be given the northern portion from there all the way up to the river Jabbok. And then that one half of the tribe of Manasseh would be given the region from the Jabbok all the way to Mount Hermon. Why? Why these tribes? Well, the answer is found elsewhere in Scripture, and let me just summarize it here for you. The tribe of Reuben and the tribe of Gad were particularly oriented towards herding. And they had, they had herds that seemed, apparently were larger than the herds of most of the other tribes. And they found this region of uh, southern Gilead to be particularly valuable for herding and grazing animals. And so they asked Moses for it. They said, would you give us this region? And of course, Moses checked with God, and God gave him the okay. And so he gave to Reuben and to Gad, that region from the Jabbok to the Arnon, and he gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh, the region above that, because after the battle of Edri, it was the princes of Manasseh who carried out the cleanup campaign, who went through the rest of the area of Og's kingdom and wiped out what, the remnant of the Amorites. They had done the mop-up, and therefore they were rewarded the land to keep. They had cleaned it up, they could keep it. And so the half-tribe of Manasseh was given that territory. There was one proviso, though. Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh could have this land if they would promise to go with Israel into Canaan for the conquest. They couldn't say, well, we got ours, boys. We're settling down here. You go get yours. Don't bother us. We've got ours. No. They had to be a part 
of the conquest of the land. They had to aid the other nine and a half tribes in the victory over Canaan, and they promised to do so, and they will actually fulfill that promise because that had been incumbent upon the whole nation. Chapter 22, Deuteronomy, I mean Numbers, beginning at verse 1. Then the sons of Israel journeyed and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan opposite Jericho. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. So Moab was in great fear because of the people, for they were numerous. And Moab was in dread of the sons of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this horde will lick up all that is around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. And Balak the son of Zippor was king of Moab at that time. So he sent messengers to Balaam the son of Beor at Pithor, which is near the river in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, a people came out of Egypt. Behold, they covered the surface of the land, and they are living opposite me. Now therefore, please come, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me, and perhaps I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. And notice the last thing he says, For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. He is actually crediting to Balaam attributes of God Almighty. Israel has conquered this whole territory from the Arnon to the north, out to the edge of the wilderness where the Ammonites lived. They conquered that territory. They were not allowed to attack the Ammonites because they, like the Moabites and the Edomites, were related to Israel. Ben-Ami was one of the sons of Lot by his daughter, as was Moab. And so they were not allowed at this time to attack those peoples. What they have done now is conquer the land. They've settled it. Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh have been accorded this territory. Now they're all gathering way back down here near Mount Nebo, just at the base of Mount Nebo in the, in the Jordan Valley, on an area called the Plain of Moab, because it used to belong to Moab until Sion took it away from them. And so they're gathering in that area called the Plains of Moab, and they're looking across the Jordan River into the Promised Land, and there on the other side of the river stood the strong-walled city of Jericho. Jericho is a very nice place. Um, Jericho is in a subtropical climate. Um, there are springs that feed Jericho water, even though it's a kind of a desert uh, wilderness area around. There are springs there that feed Jericho, and Jericho is like an oasis in the desert. Israel is looking out across the river at that walled city, and different things are going through their minds. This is our land, the opportunity, the moment has come, but that's a strong city. Those walls are big. So you can imagine the multiple thoughts that are going through the minds of the people as they face that. But they've got to go through something else here first. <clears throat> they don't immediately go into the land. Because God is not done yet with Moses. And Moses can't go into the land. And so they're camped, the plains of Moab. Now the Moabites have witnessed the complete destruction of the Amorites. The Amorites had beaten them, the Moabites, to a pulp. And now the Amorites have been absolutely obliterated by this, this horde that came up out of Egypt. You can imagine what the Moabites felt. I mean, we couldn't defeat the Amorites, and they made the Amorites look like a bunch of sissies, we're in big trouble. And we're told here that the Moabite king was 
Balak. And you could understand why he was paranoid. You and I would be paranoid too if we faced that same situation and were as pagan as he was. He was so pagan, you see, he didn't understand that God had said to Israel, no touchy Moab. You know, Moab is off limits. You can't touch them. Had he known this, he wouldn't have had, there'd been no sweat. He could just lived in his little capital and they'd done their little chemosh thing and uh, they'd have been okay for at least a while. But, but no, they're afraid because they don't know but what Israel will sweep through their kingdom as Israel had the Amorites. And so what they do here, this is implied in, um, in this passage uh, in verse 4 where it says, And Moab said to the elders of Midian. Now, Midian is a totally different nation. A totally different tribe of people. Also related, however. Because you may remember that when Abraham, after Sarah died, Abraham remarried. And Abraham married a woman by the name of Keturah, and by her the scripture named six sons that were born to Abraham by Keturah. One of them was Midian. So the Midianites are related to Moab, to Edom, to the Ammonites, and to Israel. It's a bunch of distant cousins here, kind of all looking at each other. So the Moabites here are uh, trying to create a coalition. That's what this verse is indicating. The Moabites have gotten together with the Midianites and they're saying, we've got this big problem here, what shall we do about it? Well, it seems to be implied in verse 4 that the coalition didn't feel adequate for the task. That either the coalition didn't work out so well or they felt that their combined forces, Midianites and Moabites, could not deal with Israel. Therefore, since there was no hope in Balak's mind, of defeating Israel militarily, he says, I'm going to do it with supernatural forces. Now, if there ever was an in-your-face passage of Scripture revealing to us the literal truth of Ephesians 6.12, where we read, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places, this is one of those. Because Balak is directly appealing to the dark forces to Balaam, who was a witch, a, a seer, a diviner, a man who manipulated the, the evil spirits for his own purpose. And he is appealing to him. The most famous sorcerer, I mean, he doesn't even live in Moab. He lives hundreds of miles away over in Mesopotamia. And, they, and, and this guy's heard of him. Balak's heard of him. Now remember, there's no television, there's no, uh, you know, CNN, there's no... Uh, entertainment tonight or anything else to, to let us in on all the dirt. How does he know that 500 miles away is a guy by the name of Balaam who's a great sorcerer? How does he know this? Well, obviously Balaam is very, very well known. And this man is so spiritually blind that he actually believes that Balaam can deal with Yahweh. You and I are sometimes tempted to believe that God can't do what we, what we need to see done. We sometimes feel, I think, maybe that the devil and God are almost co-equal. I mean, the devil is not even a laugh compared to God. I mean, the devil is absolutely powerless compared to God. He is nothing compared to God. And Balaam is nothing compared to God. God is not afraid of Balaam. God, uh, next week we'll be looking at the conversation that goes on. I mean, Balaam talks to God. And lo and behold, God talks back to him. And the things that God says to Balaam are not because God's afraid of Balaam. It's because he's trying to save Balaam from being an absolute fool. And maybe giving Balaam an opportunity to understand the truth. He won't take it, unfortunately. But God even speaks to those 
who have given themselves over to the devil to give them opportunity to believe the truth. And so God will deal with this man, Balaam, and it will be quite clear that Balaam has no power compared to Yahweh. And God will have the victory. But Satan will come at it from a different direction. He doesn't give up. He never gives up. He will never give up until it's over, trying to pervert God's people. And if he can't do it, just he'll come around the other side when you're not looking. And we'll see how all that plays out in um, these passages ahead.